Hey everyone, welcome to Tatonic, a business, tech, and finance podcast. I'm Nels Tate, let's get into it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, excited to have you on another episode of Tatonic. Uh, we are joined here this evening, this very, very hot outside evening. We're, we're recording this in June of 21, and my goodness, it has been like toasty outside to say the least. But my guest here tonight has been surviving it to say the least, and uh, barely, barely. We're excited to have on tonight multi entrepreneur very creative one of the most creative individuals i think i've ever interacted with honestly the one and only tate chamberlain welcome to the podcast thanks thanks for having me it's good glad to, to be you. here <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> to have you on the show it's funny i mean when we were first interacting tate you know my last name's tate your first name's tate it was kind of like i get that a lot of the time like people will call me tate because i'm you know it's like it's a weird first name so i right. get that mixed around but it's it's almost like having like a a namesake in a way on the show People have told me that I'm the guy with two last names. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, I, I get the same thing. I'm the guy with two, almost two first names in a way. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Well, fantastic. Tate, we're excited to have you here. Um, before we dig in a little bit, I want to hear a little bit more about you, your background, what brought you here to Bozeman, Montana, and what inspired you to start. Well, we can get into that a little bit, but tell me what, what brought you here in the first place. What brought me to Montana? I'm yeah. originally from Colorado and was really into the outdoors and wanted that same kind of vibe, but with a new set of people. Yeah, yeah. And so I looked at a lot of colleges in the West, uh, even in Canada, and just uh, I think I liked the name Bozeman yeah. at the time. I was just like a 16-year-old kid looking at schools and really wanted to ski and do everything that people who go to Montana State University want to do. Yeah. And so that brought me to Bozeman and I started in business management and it was a it was an okay major. It was before they had the Jab School of Business yeah. and the Launchpad. And so I uh I had a couple of businesses. I've had businesses since I was about 13. And what was your first business? I'm just, I'm curious. Oh, my first business was, um, I used to have this lemonade stand and there were two entrances to our neighborhood. And so I, um, we'd have two lemonade stands set up in a day to, to make as much money as we could. And then we'd go to the candy store and buy all we could. Naturally. And then it evolved into photography in college, I had a, uh, I designed jackets, like mm. outdoor gear Yeah, uh, for a while. And what kind of, when you say design jackets, like, what do you mean by that? Like you, you, you put the whole design together and then had them printed or, or, or made. Yeah. Yeah. It was called life outdoor wear. Nice. And it was mainly for ice climbing, uh, jackets at the time were just sort of baggy. And so they were a little more slim fit and they fit into your gloves better. And there was also like a, a helmet liner that you could, there was like a wool, soft shell wool that would fit under a helmet. Oh, that's cool. A little easier. Yeah. And so I would always, in, in school, I would find myself in independent studies because they didn't have the launch pad or right. things for, for students who were 
who wanted it, to be more engaged in entrepreneurship. Yeah, independent studies was was basically like you you take what you're learning right now and it's like apply it to a real life business scenario effectively. Yeah, and in business in in the business management school, I was learning how to write memos and it was totally boring and awful. Yeah. And so I switched <laughs> the, the, the smart things to learn, of course. Yeah, it was. Uh, I didn't, it didn't, it, I didn't, ma- I didn't align with it. Yeah. And so I switched to graphic design, which is oh, where I finished cool. uh, my education at MSU. That's cool, man. And I've always thrown parties. I threw house parties when my parents were away and uh, <laughs> the best time to throw house parties. To yeah, <laughs> I got, and, and did I you got to get caught on any of those. I did. Oh. I got caught by cleaning up too well. <laughs> when your parents came home and the house was too clean and they're like clean. we know we, we know. know what you did yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it uh yeah the parties i've always been a community builder so it yeah. evolved into to college where i threw more parties yeah. and eventually uh tacoed two floors we had so many people in the houses that the floors broke oh my goodness and it uh that's an achievement it is. It's, uh, it led to a 10 year career producing music festivals and <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's the indicator right now. <laughs> is, is when the floor caves in, that's when you're like, all right, we're on to something. We're on to yeah, something here. There's a, we have enough people in the building that it's like, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and looking back now, I can kind of see my trajectory from community building into kind of social science, Yeah, yeah. which has been, uh, it's been fun to reflect on how I, how I ended up where I'm at now. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, that 10 year career of producing events, producing large music festivals, Chamberlain Productions, um, obviously well known in the Valley for, for quite some time, you know, moving into that, what was that like from a, from a standpoint of, you know, taking this idea? I think a lot of the times we have people listening in that are like, okay, you know, I, I have this one thing I'm good at, or like I get some traction or, you know, people are buying my screen printed shirts that, that have some awesome sayings on that. Like, how do I move from, from this like kind of basic idea, this hobby, this something that I do on the side, that's really fun. And other people are getting around into like full blown kind of business in that regard. What was that transition like? Yeah, it was, it was scary. I, uh, throughout college, you know, the independent studies kind of gave me a, a safe runway to kind of tinker in yeah. with, with projects test, and, risk. and Yeah. Yep. And my senior thesis for, design school i somehow convinced a couple of people to give me a hundred thousand dollars to put a band on tour and what was the band it was so my entry into music was in country okay because i had worked at a music festival in my hometown in colorado as a stagehand and so um all of my contacts were in country music and so the the tour was with this guy named colin ray okay he sings uh that's my story and I'm sticking to it and oh, yeah. little red yeah. rodeo. Yeah. And, yep. uh, totally old school. And then, uh, Chris Ledoux's band. Oh, cool. Uh, and Western underground. That's awesome. Was in on it also. We're in on it. And so my senior thesis for a design school was to produce this tour, but on top of that, uh, designing the posters and the tickets, which and, you were already ready to do because you had this graphic design background. Right. And my thesis project had to have a design element to it. Sure. At the time I was also working at a printing company. And so I learned how to, uh, I printed all the posters myself on, on their presses and learned how to really? do color and, and everything like that. So it was a full on, um, experience. There was, it was cool. That, that gave me the runway and 
<clears throat> I think motivation to uh, not have a job going out of college. Yeah. It, uh, it sort of had do? momentum. How'd the tour do? Uh, a couple of them did okay. A couple of them <laughs> tanked. Uh, but it, I think it, I think it almost broke even. Nice. But music, the music industry is hard. It is. Well, touring is really hard. I've, I've read a number of articles about artists that, you know, they were like, this is going to be the tour and they get like three shows in and there's either nobody showing up or, or whatever it is. And they're like, all right, we're going to cancel it because it's like, it's a lot of upfront overhead. Yeah. And, and that's, I think the lesson I learned and why I pivoted to festivals because a festival you could brand as its own entity Mm -hmm. and it would create a following that wouldn't care who the bands were sure um they knew it would be good because they had always had a good experience at the festivals and so building the the framework for bands to move through uh became a really uh powerful business for me and i eventually would um just acquire events that people uh were giving up on like about the montana beer festival yeah and flipped it i would like how you do a house you yeah. can you can buy an event or a festival and regrow it and re uh, invigorate it and rebrand it and get a, a new following for it and then um, there's a market for people who who buy festivals that have have followings and ticket sales that's really unique in that regard you know i i think that concept of buying a house you know how I, your, your relation to real estate there is seems pretty accurate to me is you know you have this fixer upper Basically, you walk in, you you know that the floors need to be redone. You see that the the windows haven't been washed in years, and and the you know some of the plumbing needs to be reworked on. But you get it for a steal, you know, a relatively good deal, unless it's in Bozeman, and then you're paying the same price no matter what. <laughs> unless it's now, <laughs> yeah, unless it's now. And um, but then it's like you can put the work in, especially if you have an eye for it, and be able to turn this, you know x dollar investment into like a 1.5 x or a 2x or a 3x dollar investment by putting in um you know just a minimal amount there i think one of the things that's interesting about that tate is it takes a specific eye to be able to see what something needs and obviously you had the background from the doing the tours from starting up the the actual you know the chamberlain productions festivals and then actually purchasing these other festivals that had some form of following and you could say okay i've done this before i know what it needs i need this branding i need this level of engagement i need these artists i need to uh, you know connect with these key players that are involved with it i i think that's really interesting from a, a side of being able to have the eye for it and obviously i would say partially it's an experience thing but i think it's partially it just comes naturally in some ways yeah i think uh you brought up having an eye for it and rebranding. The, that's where my design degree has really helped me. I, I don't use it a lot anymore, but it helped me with branding and kind of yeah. keeping keeping things cohesive throughout a marketing process. And, and yeah, that, uh, that inner uh, thing within me that keeps community building yeah. and throwing parties yeah. uh, kind of gave me that that steam and, and fire behind it to, yeah. uh, to really excel at it. So those two, the branding and, and that community building really fused for me. And, and Bozeman at the time was a really ripe community. There wasn't a lot of uh, events going on. Right now it's, it's completely more. saturated. Yeah. And um, I've gotten out of the business because of that. Um, and, it, and luckily I got out uh, on top and could just kind of leave and be really proud yeah. of it. Well, it's cool to look back and see what you built. 
See, yeah. like when you, you, you know, and also I think one of the cool things about being a founder in the, in the event space and, and having a series of specific, um, you know, memories to look back on. I think that's really unique to say, like, we did that. Like that was a, that was an event that people showed up to. That was really cool. Like we got people motivated behind it. I think one of the things that's interesting a lot of the time we have people that are curious about, like, how do I get my fan base motivated? How do I get, you know, how do I bleed that passion into my, my crew around me? What was, what was that experience like as far as, you know, kind of from a hype sense in, in a very hype centric industry where it's like getting people engaged and excited about this event that's happening. I mean, the same thing applies to whatever service or product you're providing as a business owner, but I yeah. think it's even more specific there. What was the process there of like getting hyping. people hype? <laughs> yeah. Hyping. Uh, I guess it would come down to two sayings that have kind of stuck with me and in design school, it, there would have been design a poster you can steal mm. that you would steal. Uh, that developed, the kind of excitement around branding. We did large format posters, um, like movie posters, yeah. thousands of them. I, I was going to say, I'm 90% sure I had some in my dorm room. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and then for my dad, he's always, uh, been like people support a cause, but they sacrifice for a vision. Mm -hmm. And so having, having that vision and, uh, community building strength, uh, people really bought into it. Cause I saw that I think I was authentic, authentically into it. And, and throughout the 10 years of doing it, I, I can't tell you how many people have gotten married because of meeting at my <laughs> events or working through my company. Uh, a couple awful. of our interns are married now. A couple of our volunteers are married now and countless other people. You need to rebrand um, as a wedding business or know, like a, yeah. dating a matchmaker. App. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Facebook's got nothing. on. So it. it's, so it's had all of these, uh, just little things that have petered out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and probably even more ways than I can, and can see that I never heard of yeah. uh, or about. And so, yeah, the, and the excitement for the festivals, like that annual thing that people, you know, they mark on their calendars. I can't wait for next year. And, uh, one of our bigger ones was our, our rail jam event. Oh yeah. And it was crystal method played one of those. I they think. did, yeah. We had I was uh, at that show. That was a good show. Base nectar and crystal method. You were in yeah. that was Big Sky. Uh, Big Sky with yeah. atmosphere. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. I went. To, yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a good set. So yeah, we just kind of it was Montana, and there are no venues, and so we just kind of were scrappy. All of our floors were in barns and had dirt floors, or at Rail Jam, people would expect the muddiest event of the year, and they would have their Rail Jam boots. And I'm not kidding, um, like thick yeah. mud that people would lose their shoes in a lot of the time. We we did eventually make it to Big Sky, uh, where our welcome wore thin about two year, three years in. I think we did it for three years up there. And um, I don't know, I think they were looking for something more bougie than yeah. I had to offer. <laughs> yeah it's the it's the big sky vibe right there. yeah <laughs> what was and, and that brings up a really good point tate what was that like you know transitioning from a, a career of 10 years of producing events you know acquiring other other festivals and, and turning them into these fantastic performing events where um you're in a space where honestly it's like there's not a lot of other events to that scale going on where you're getting that kind of crowd that kind of those that quantity of people around what was that like moving out of that and what were the the signals to you that you were like okay it's it's time to move on to something else there were a few signals for me i i remember 
just not having a life yeah around it and that was one of them i had i think one year we had up to seven festivals going oh my and they most of them did well a couple of them took a little while to get off the ground i um i'm in the lgbt community and i have had this uh this habit of falling in love with my straight best friends yeah and that happened on one of the last iterations of chamberlain productions and um my heart kind of got broken around it also yeah um and and i saw there were by the end of that my career doing it uh there were a lot of festivals and events happening and so uh once we would be able to get you know 50 dollars in sponsorships after people i think saw that uh over time they started to like ask for money also and mm. that that pool eventually diluted yeah uh, because of so much competition and so there were a handful of things the last event that we did was called moods of the madison yeah which was in, actually, uh, right yeah young the giant and the whalers and yeah. rising appalachia um that was a that was a great show to go out on we had a just a, a three-year agreement with uh, a couple of private people in ns montana and the city and um just this mo- the biggest budget we had ever had and so it's it allowed me to kind of give my final like expression of of there's like an artistic piece to building an experience for me and it allowed me to to really put the pedal to the metal and build something to kind of go out on it's cool because it's kind of your you know your finale in a way Mm -hmm. it's like yeah it's like you know when you recognize you're at the point of there's two ways to go out as a founder in my opinion either go out in like a burst of flames in in a negative way (laughs) Or you can go out and also like, done that with, with like <laughs> on the fireworks side of things where it's like, you know, I think the worst way to go out as a founder is like mediocre, like mediocre. Yeah. yeah right. It's like, it's a mediocre end. And people just like, like forget you. Yeah. Like it means you had like, no, like your lasting impact legacy, the, the time you spent building it. Like I would always prefer to say, you know, we have a hard stop and we ended at this date. We ended well, like we did a good job or, you you know, in some capacity where people are going to look back in that regard. And I think that's really cool that you guys did that because it's like you recognized, hey, we're we're ready to move on to this next phase, whatever yep. it may be uh, of, of business, of life, of, you know, party building, relationship building and um, community think, building, community building. <laughs> it's a better term. <laughs> party building um, also that but but i think recognizing that it's a it's cool to be able to to say let's put let's give it our all let's put all of this into this and i think that's a it's a very you know we see it in movies all the time but i think in in real life it doesn't happen very often and anytime you get the opportunity to plan for it and say this is the right move to make it it's really cool yeah and i was uh i was lucky in that regard i think i don't think i think you're right a lot of people don't have that opportunity and so I, I did recognize that and decide that, um, yeah, it was good. It was the right move, yeah. I think. Because then, then I evolved. At, at that time, I think I bought Blunderbuss in 2014. Okay. So I had had Blunderbuss for a couple of years, and it was uh, kind of starting off of that. Yeah. And, and I Am Interchange started as a music festival uh that's that's a perfect transition i was just gonna yeah. ask like what was you know because i know that was kind of the next step there like at, at the after the end of moves of the madison so you guys had blunderbuss at that point you were already saying hey we need to move in this kind of creative housing space where we're, we're you know this collaborative maker space in a way 
And then yeah. also um, launching IMA Interchange. Ta- talk about that transition a little bit and, and also kind of what spurred both of those projects. Yeah, they both they both kind of overlapped with Chamberlain Productions. There was a, there's like a stability that you need in order to transition to a different business. Yes. And yes. so um, Moods of the Madison created... I, I had almost not done it, but I recognized that um, it was a good opportunity to be able to transition into a couple of new projects and have the cash flow that I needed to do that. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I Am Interchange started in 2013. Okay. Uh, a few years before that. And it was, I still had a music festival in my mind, but we had fused it with kind of TED style talks. And I, I had um, gone to a few pride events in Montana and I, people always give me dirt for saying this, but I, I pride's great. I, I, it often felt that my straight friends weren't welcome at it mm. or different, uh, communities with like social trauma. It, it was either, it was either like there, it was almost, it, it wasn't a good blend of diversification. Right. Even though it, I mean, and I, and I understand that having pride gives uh, gay people like a community mm-hmm. that they don't yeah. have in, in a lot of places. But yeah. but I wanted it more than that. And so I we added, uh, we had the LGBT community, but we also included veterans with PTSD. And we had, um, there were throwaway kids, homeless kids who were thrown out by their families for any other reasons. Um, and so that it was a, a music festival style event fused with kind of TED Talks mm-hmm. around lots of different topics that we would host. And I would still find myself on stage getting ready for the show as opposed to being in the room having uh, the conversation, having the conversations. They would happen without me because yeah. I was doing something else because you were producing the event, you know, yeah, I was still it's, doing it's that. Yeah. <laughs> and so it took a few years for, for interchange to get out of that. I eventually, uh, really nerded out in social science and, uh, got into facilitation around groups and conflict and, kind of changed gears into the media company hmm. what's give me a high level overview on social science i know we talked a little bit about this before but you know for our listeners that don't really have a good understanding of social science like i'm you know and yeah. also your specific <laughs> you know where where your specialty is in the world of social science it's so broad there's and social science is weird because there's not really a quantitative value like other sciences have yep. yeah so it's harder to it's harder for some people to take seriously and it's harder to like pinpoint accuracies around it, mm-hmm. which is where I think is the most fun that it's kind of like gray area yeah. in it. So I guess social science would be the connection of uh, how people interact in the world and, and their developmental growth and understanding when people are at different phases of their developmental growth, uh, interacting with other people who are at different phases of elemental growth, developmental growth, and there's a complex issue around, you have to understand the differences in, you know, where they're from and their education and, um, you know, how they might embody the emotions around yeah. it together. Things like epigenetics even and, and like, you know, sure. where they're from, what their, you know, um, what subliminal experiences they don't even know sure, about yeah. that impact them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, that's, that's how I apply social science and that's my understanding of it. And so, uh, with interchange, I studied integral facilitation and integral meta theory, hmm. which is, it talks about these different developmental stages and, um, it teaches you to 
learn how to embody all the different emotions. People have hundreds of different emotions, like uh, an angry self and a greedy self and a loving self and a, a naive self. Um, all these different selves that uh, people embody and these feelings. And so, you know, going back to connecting different people that are coming from their different emotions and backgrounds, um, being able to embody that with them together uh, kind of breaks down a, a barrier and creates a container where you can start exploring polarities. Um, mm. and, and specifically, that's like getting two people in the room that have very opposing opinions based on all those factors and also right. their their emotional selves in that moment yeah and and being able to connect those people right yeah and and for some reason with community building i've always like gone towards the middle of tension yeah uh i've i i don't know I don't, oh, you're one of those people okay. i don't know how to describe <laughs> it and uh <laughs> but there's some success so yeah. if, if you take uh, um one reason why i turned it into a media company was because i there, were, there are all these complex issues that uh, are really complicated and there's a lot of tension around them. Yeah. And so, what are some examples of those just for, you know, our listeners sake? Yeah. So um, we hosted a debate around Standing Rock. Do you remember the oh, yeah. Dakota Ac yep. Access Pipeline protest? Uh -huh. um, we did a couple of research trips into Standing Rock and uh, we were, I mean, we wanted to show our support, but we were also driving there in our cars and using fossil fuels to get there when this protest is around obviously oil pipelines. Yep. And, and so we, we got a, um, an indigenous person from the ACLU, uh, the chairman of the Crow tribe, a couple of activists who were at Standing Rock. And then we got an oil investor, the Montana Petroleum Association and two totally um, separate people on the opposite sides of that. Yeah. On such a contentious issue. Uh, yeah. But, but it's, it's complicated, right? Yeah. And so being able to, instead of going to, you know, Fox News and Huffington Post and all these other outlets that have a lot of bias and one side of the issue, um, when you can explore polarities with people who don't get along in the same room, the facilitation around the complexity and the, the back and forth exchange and the debate and the really contentious pieces is a really uh, good educational experience. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I, you know, I would love to be a fly in the wall, which you actually can. Yeah, we do. We're going to get back into live events soon. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. You know, when you say from a media side of things, obviously you're not just bringing people in the room to have these conversations, facilitate the conversation, but you're actually, you know, recording this in an audio and sometimes video standpoint as well for other people to kind of join in the issue. Yeah. And, and my goal isn't to get the people on the panel to agree by the end of it. Right. A lot of facilitation would be to get them on the same page. I don't think that's to move forward. No, I think it's, it's raising the issue and providing education and opportunity for other people to engage with it. Yeah. And so, so my goal is to create a, a better media piece for people to help under, to help people understand the, the complexity of these issues that, that are happening around them. So another debate that we released was called OK Boomer. We talked a little oh, bit I heard about a little it. bit about this one, yeah. I had someone from every generation on it. So, you know, OK Boomer is kind of this spiteful f you to old people for handing down this, this burning world that we're in. Yeah. 
Uh, and on top of that, the the largest wealth transfer in history is about to happen. Uh, $68 yes. trillion dollars is about to transfer hands, making the millennial generation the wealthiest generation ever. Which which explain that from an economics perspective. I think I have a base understanding of that. But you're you're saying from as the as the the generation prior basically your boomers are transitioning you know are passing it's going to that's where that transition's happening that generational wealth is moving right there's a there's a few catches to it yeah uh when boomers were the same age as millennials they held 23 percent of the nation's wealth and now that millennials are the same age they hold three percent and so when this transition happens uh that statistic's actually supposed to get worse the income inequality it'll go to fewer people interesting um but there's uh you can apply that to housing you know a lot of baby boomers have houses um in areas that um there's about to be this huge surplus in the housing market as well and mm-hmm. so um it's a really great topic to explore we explored whether old people should be allowed to vote or not oh um, interesting we all decided that they should be yeah. by the end of it but it was again you can explore a lot of younger people think that they shouldn't. And so exploring that with older people in the room together yeah, um, was a really great uh, exploration. Well, and having the conversation, I think that's really interesting. So, you know, we can get to this more at the end, but um, where can people find this podcast? You can go to IamInterchange.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. That shameless plug right there. <laughs> Thanks. I'll take awesome. it. That's cool. <laughs> so you guys, um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about that is you know, historically Montana is, is this space that's what I would consider relatively undiverse. Like I grew up in Missoula, you know, it it wasn't really until traveling around the U S that it became painfully obvious in a lot of ways, you know, we're a small population state and there's honestly a, a, a very low, uh, diversity standpoint, um, from, you know, both ethnic as well as viewpoints, as well as, you know, a lot of different factors, demographics in, in almost every capacity versus a lot of other areas of the U S. Um, what's that like getting people from very diverse backgrounds in the same room in, in a place like Bozeman in Montana? It's actually, Bozeman is actually more diverse than people think it is. I think so too. I yeah. think I, I would agree with that. I think yeah. just hi- historically growing up around the, U- uh, around Montana, I'm like kind of have a, a similar point of view. A lot of people have at the same point of view. Yeah. I, I think of my hometown at like small town of Hicksville, but I, mm-hmm. I think it was probably more diverse than I remember it. Yeah, for sure. Um, that can be true. That can be a perception. Uh, that's an interesting point to bring up because I, th- I, th- there is this, this is kind of a sidetrack from, from the, our main mm-hmm. point here, but you know, you're, you're growing up in middle school, high school, college, whatever. And you're like, Oh my goodness. Like, you know, I just can't wait to get out of this space about out of this place. And then you kind of like later on in life, you're like, Oh, it's, it's kind of a cool place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You go back and I, yeah. I, I'm actually going through that right now with my hometown. Uh, they have a big university now and oh, it's, cool. it's turning into a pretty vibrant place. Where are you from in Colorado? Grand Junction. Grand Junction. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, uh, it is interesting. It, Bozeman does have a good diverse selection of people. We, we get people to travel here sometimes, uh, depending on the topic. We did a debate on compassion versus practicality, and the topic was immigration. Oh, that's interesting. And we brought in this uh, immigration attorney from New York who had, uh, he had been an asylum seeker from Ecuador and became an immigration attorney to help other people kind of navigate the process. Wow. And his polarity, we had Wilmot Collins, the mayor of Helena, who's a Liberian refugee, Mm. and this guy named Ken Johnson, who uh, is with a group called the Sons of Odin, 
It's oh, okay. this kind of white nationalist group Got that it. started in Finland. Uh, it happened. There was this tension point because a bunch of refugees from Somalia were relocated to a small town in Finland. And it was basically the same amount of refugees as there was the population in the town. Oh, so it was a, it was a kind of a takeover in a way. It kind of created a culture shock. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Sons of Odin created this like street, uh, street brigade of hmm. protection around you know protecting their own their, their culture yeah and so uh one of my favorite parts about interchange is is uh kind of applying the mentality that no one's 100 percent wrong yeah um which helps me create empathy around it D- does that also imply the the alternate that no one's 100 percent right right Interesting. yeah sure yeah. i think so yeah so um I forgot where we were at. Oh, diversity in Montana. Uh, And our business has uh, kind of scaled to where there's larger events that are happening that, uh, like we worked with the governor's office for a few events. They commissioned us to do a topic on the future of work at Mm. their Innovate Montana event. What is the future of work? Just uh, just not to dip too far into that, but I'm kind of curious. Check out our podcast. Two minutes over (laughs) <laughs> that's awesome i'm sure it's it's impossible to put into two sentence but that is really interesting like you know being able to facilitate are you guys seeing the opportunity to do that more with kind of the covid restrictions lifting yeah yeah so with larger events like that they'll bring in the star power of people to the events and then they'll hire us to they'll uh, hire us or commission a topic that will come in and and build we'll we'll get the players that they want in it and then build some sort of topic that includes tension around, around it. That um, it's been pretty popular. That's interesting to do that. Yeah. And so yeah, the future of work. Um, my friend, I'll just give you my favorite scenario of it. My friend Rob Irzari works at Oracle for artificial intelligence, and he was on it. And his idea is that automation will take all the jobs that humans shouldn't have anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause they're monotonous and boring, yeah. but what it will allow is the freedom for people to explore activism and making things and farming. And it'll create this, um, kind of new Renaissance. Yeah. Uh, just by freeing up space from monotonous labor from a mental capacity standpoint, yeah. that's actually a perfect transition into kind of the third thing you're, you're working on right now, which is blunderbuss blunderbuss. Yeah. This, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I could give my kind of viewpoint of Blunderbuss, which is like one of the coolest projects I've, I've seen. Um, but Thanks. how would you give us a high level <laughs> overview of the project? Blunderbuss. I describe as, <clears throat> I describe it as a long-term hostel for risk takers. I've always had my own project and my own apartment and it was pre co-working spaces and, um, it was kind of lonely during the day. And so it's this space that has uh we do residencies there's bedrooms and co-working and private studios we've got a shop that we've had a lot of conversion buses and tiny houses and vans built out of for all these nomads that are they're van lifing it and and blunderbuss is namesake is after the gun uh, the original shotgun that pirates used to use and they were really resourceful because you could fire out of them whatever you could fit down the barrel like <laughs> forks and knives and rocks and so it's a metaphor for risk takers to do what you can with what you have. Yeah. And, and the social science in that is, uh, getting a group of people living together who are all in on a project is yeah. just a really amazing environment to be around. One of the things that's really unique about Blunderbuss too, is, you know, the diversity of the different people there. 
is you have so many people with different passions or projects they're working on or whatever it may be. And the thing that that's unique about bringing all those people together is you have everybody is kind of is, is passionate about what they're doing. And it's that passion that actually unites everybody. Yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, you don't have to be in the same type of business to collaborate. Yeah. A lot of times it takes uh, someone from a completely different industry or someone who's completely naive about what you do to start asking questions. Uh, and it gets you like naturally out of your natural state yeah. of, of thinking, which is really, uh, it just comes at you from directions you would never consider. It allows you to be so much more collaborative, so much more, um, creative and honestly, as a, you know what, which I think is especially as a small business owner, as a, a founder of any project, a lot of times you can get stuck in that. It's like, okay, I'm only going to target these people as an audience. And it's, you almost need somebody else in that different field to kind of help you shift your focus to say, okay, like, what about this? What about this? What about this? I hadn't even thought about marketing. I hadn't even thought about, you know, what if we engage people in this capacity? There's yeah. so much. I, I think that's one of the greatest benefits of a creative environment, not just, not just co-working space. Cause I think there's a, there's a key difference between co-working space and what Blunderbuss is. Like, yeah. I, think, I think there's a, a succinct culture difference there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that I mean, obviously people live there, so there's more of a, a home resident yeah. vibe. It's warm. And it's not all... Yeah, yeah. There's a, What I love about Blunderbuss, it, it kind of flirts with residential, but it's also commercial. Yeah. And so we have all the like sweet commercial pieces, like our kitchen's awesome. and um, you, you have a sprinkler system. Our new fire sprinkler system <laughs> that we had to get. Um, our new be proud of that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh and expensive, but yeah, and our new, we're doing this expansion on it right now. And our new insurance classifies us as a hotel. That's cool. And so, so flirting with the kind of resident side and the commercial side allows the, um, it's like a great, I call it a clubhouse. It's like a great lounge and art yeah. gallery museum. And that's uh, exactly, that's a great uh, metaphor for that is a, is a clubhouse. It's really, it's like, yeah. it's like the tree house. You get everybody in there. Everybody's working on different things. Um, what, what I think is really cool. And I want to touch base. I want to come back to that point is as AI replaces the, the monotonous jobs that people are doing, whether it's, you know, assembly line work or, you know, keeping task in, I don't know, whatever it is, checking the, checking the boxes in whatever capacity. What's really cool about that is there's two huge benefits. One, I think people will be more naturally engaged in what they do because their capacity for creativity is much higher than most people expect it is. Most people right. are, are substantially more creative than, than they think they are. They just don't have the opportunity to really showcase it. Yeah, they get sucked. They have you know kids or have a job yeah. that they have you know, they grow into student debt and yeah. have to pay all that kind of thing, that all that stuff off. Well, and, and what's, you know, you get stuck in the same nine to five job, your, your weeks are going to go by because it's like, you're in the same rhythm, the same thing. But it's like, when you switch that up, that's why you remember your vacations. It's not like your vacation was, you know, months out of the year, but it feels like it's months out of the year in a way, because it's a totally different experience than your day to day experience. Yeah. And I think what's cool about that is, you know, as AI replaces, I don't think it's a, it's an, if it's a, when really, you know, as it replaces those 
standardized jobs that we've had historically in America and around the world, we're going to be able to see more creative people that are more engaged in, and actually enjoying and experiencing life more. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think COVID gave me a good uh, view of that. We, yeah. It opened us up to people who I call digital nomads, people who work... Uh, who can work remotely, basically all of COVID, everyone was working remotely and traveling around wherever they wanted. As long as they had fast internet and a place to sleep, they could do business anywhere. Yeah. And so, yeah, we had a, a gal who worked for this company in Australia and she would work in our co-working space in the middle of the night, but she could do it from anywhere. Yeah. And she chose, she chose Bozeman and fortunately we've got fiber internet, which is what everybody wants. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's this, uh, I think getting out of that routine, like vacations, uh, COVID allowed the, the workers to stay at home and kind of change their lifestyle a little yeah. bit around their routine. And that, I think people like that. Why do you think, I'm, I'm kind of curious on that. I, I would totally agree with you there. And, you know, I can't, I can't even name the number of, of people that I saw in relatively high you know, upscale positions with companies during COVID that were just traveling around in a van and saying, Hey, like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to work out of this hotel or not even their hotel. They're going to work out of their van because they have whatever satellite internet yeah. right there and, and you're ready to go. So Thanks, Starlink. Like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Starlink. <laughs> Thanks, Elon. Appreciate it. Yeah. That's a really interesting technology there, which we won't get into, but it's super <laughs> interesting. If you haven't checked it out, go, um, you can check out, it's a, uh, technology for high speed satellite internet by SpaceX. Uh, also Elon Musk, the, yeah, what, the biggest character there is on Twitter. <laughs> Imagine, uh, yeah, not being tethered to, uh, Anything. internet or out peeing out of service having a satellite connecting you from anywhere and solar yeah you're just running it all off solar you're 100 yeah. percent off the grid yeah so i think i think all that combined is helping to create the future of work oh without a doubt it that's it is really interesting in that regard is the ability to be able to work from anywhere i think that's what's interesting about COVID is we've always had the we've had the technology to work from anywhere for quite some time it was just COVID was kind of the kick to say let's actually do it. You know, you have to actually do it now. And then companies started realizing, well, this, this kind of works. Yeah. Systems change is hard. Yeah, it is. Uh, and that actually segues nicely into where interchange kind of yeah. delves into and, and getting into systems change. Yeah. Tell me about systems change. What is systems change? So it often takes blunt force usually with humans, but you can, you can design system change voluntarily sometimes also. Mm. <laughs> You have to get a lot of people behind it to create the momentum in a way, though. Right. It's the because it's it's turning, you know, getting the rock to move. And it's like you have a couple people behind it. But really, until you get everybody have that awareness behind it, it's, it's difficult to, you know, move the boulder in that regard. Yeah. So that, um, you know, it'll change offices forever. Some offices might not even have a home office anymore. Right. Yeah. So systems change, I guess, with interchange, uh, we talked about exploring polarities and debate within a complex issue. And in order to understand the system, you have to be able to un have that conversation around the tension and get all this, the stakeholders together. Yeah. From there you can do a uh, systems, uh, like redesign 
lab. We call them a lab. And I guess my example during the pandemic, I was, I was bored and hosted a lab. I, uh, Bozeman, uh, one of my debates was, was on whether water was a human right or not. Ooh. And the United Nations says it is, but the United Na- the United States says it isn't. Interesting. And uh, so the development of the West is arguably done horribly irresponsibly. We tend to build our habitats in places and ship water to areas where humans shouldn't exist. And it's created quite a predicament that we're kind of running into. Bozeman's projected to run out of water by 2035. Hmm. And so we... And when you say run out of water... <clears throat> Where that's a that's a ratio of how many people there are consuming the water that's available here. Yeah, versus how much we intake from the mountains, um, or are in uh, the they call it kind of a big bathtub in the valley that yep. we're in. But that was the statistic before COVID, and so now we see this influx of houses coming in, and all these straws are like sinking down. You don't have to have a permit to drill a well; you can just do it, <clears throat> and. So, yeah, I got um, the county commissioners, some state representatives, the real estate agents and developers and conservation groups. And we put together a design lab around water. Hmm. And so we hosted a debate with them, kind of exploring whether water was a human right or not with all of these stakeholders. Well, that's a really interesting approach because it's like, here's a very practical problem, but you're saying like, let's start very high level overview. You're like, what is, you know, what is water to humans? Yeah. And, and I want to think that it is a human right, but I don't think it is if we're not good stewards of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't buy into that. We're good stewards of it. (laughs) Um, so the lab historically, historically, yeah, historically. And yeah, historically continue <laughs> so we got all the stakeholders uh including real estate who aren't usually included in these conversations and um we hosted this debate in front of them we helped them understand the complexity of it and the big overhead view and from there we broke into labs we had a government lab an economics lab and a public action lab and once you break into those labs with the stakeholders um who are from all the different backgrounds of buildings um, you go into a brainstorm, like, what if we did this? 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 And from there you can figure out short-term goals, midterm goals, and long-term goals on, um, actually taking action with the items yeah. because you have the policymakers in the room and you help the, the real estate developers understand that, um, you know, we have all these lawns where, and and our our storm drains that we when it rains all of our water goes down a storm drain everywhere and then it goes back to the treatment plant or into the river and then we do this huge inefficient process back through the plumbing back out our house to water the outside areas but there's simple changes you can make like uh, in a parking lot uh, with your landscaping requirements you can build your landscaping in kind of a basin Mm-hmm. And you can instead of putting in a storm drain, you can make a little bevel, div, a little bevel in, in, the, in, in the, the curb. curb. Yeah, and so all the water will flood into the area. And that doing just doing that simple thing, you don't have to hook up, you know, drip systems and automated systems, and you're not taking water out of the water table. It's just this simple uh, application that developers can do that will help save them money and also be good stewards. Yeah. 
and so he increases efficiency too from a from a you know an energy usage standpoint because it's like something has to be able to you know there's some power consumption unit that brings that water back to the appropriate spaces if you're recirculating from a storm drain from a drip system so on and so forth totally and and so it's we just have this systemic way of doing things though right yeah yep <laughs> which doesn't consider that we've done it before well it's yeah it is interesting in that regard because it's like you see um one of the things i i really find unique is right now a lot of these applications are only accessible to people with sufficient funding and what's unique about that is when you look back at things like christmas lights you look back at like recycling is you had the people with substantial funding have it you know incorporate it first and modernize it find more efficient ways of doing it and that's what brought the price down to be able to have access to everybody mm-hmm. else and i feel like we're in that that initial phase here of like how how do we become have more efficient buildings how do we have more efficient lifestyles you know how do we how, how are we better stewards of the resources the natural resources we have around this and it's like potentially right now we have access only at higher levels but you know as that drips down i think there's going to be we're going to see you know there i think there's obviously practical things you can do as an individual on whatever scale of the of the economic spectrum you Mm -hmm. are but what's unique about that is i think we're going to see larger access to some of these potentially high levelly funded concepts down the road yeah i mean it's not even a high level concept a lot of i think a lot um, of it is pretty basic (laughs) like in montana there's a lot of uh i guess assumptions around water rights yeah. It's it's a lot of people think that you can't have rain bar- barrels or things like that, but as long as you don't store it and pump it, you can you can delay it, mm. which is wiggle room according to the DEQ, Interesting. the people who govern it. They were also on my water lab. I who, was going to say um, that's a good person. And I had them uh, acknowledge that in front of everybody who's yeah. there acknowledging the wiggle room and and water capture. Yeah. Uh everybody needs to do it. And it, it everybody has a roof and everybody has a gutter that spits just into nothing yeah spits into their lawn but you can re um every yard has a grade you can readjust the water to water your trees mm. um for little to no cost most houses have all of what they need you that just landscaping you just need a shovel budget yeah, <laughs> yeah and exactly. so you can if you haven't planted your trees yet you can or if you do have them planted then it it might take a little bit more effort, but, but you can use uh, gravity and the grade of your property to move your stormwater to water your plants, so you don't have to do this big inefficient process yeah. of, of that. And uh, this is something you guys are doing at Blunderbuss. I mean, I know walking through the, the food forest aspect there is something that you're currently applying there. We are, yeah. Um, I know we're going to talk about lead buildings yeah. in a second. Um, a lot of it's great to see buildings kind of going in that direction. What Even, is lead just for our listeners that don't know? Oh, I don't know that. It's, it's like, uh, <laughs> it's basically a sustainable building yeah, pro- yeah. using sustainable. Building processes. Yeah. yeah. You can look it up. You have Google. Um, Google it. I don't know that the problem is right now is humans are compassionate for other humans uh, even over the environment. And so Bozeman just relaxed their code in order to build faster mm. to provide more housing, more housing for, people. for people that don't have access to housing. Right. And so we're like accelerating the wrong direction right mm. now. 
and even if they were lead, lead certified buildings, uh, it's great that big companies and people are starting to think about sustainability. Yeah. Um, it's not just the, the one-off. The problem is we passed that bus stop. We like blew by the sustainable bus stop. And so, so <clears throat> the, the whole conversation needs to be reframed uh, to de- be designed thinking about uh, regenerative thinking. How, yeah. how do we build things that don't just take? How do we build things that give back? And so, yeah, with the water capturing system, that gives back to the local ecology of your house, your quarter acre house. Um, and, you know, things like uh, building swales for uh, where your stormwater goes and filling them with um, organic material like uh, carbon capture with all the wood chips and everything like that. Instead of burning it, you can just shred it and turn it into big sponges that help your your land absorb water more efficiently. And so that's a regenerative process that helps build the ecology back rather than um, just taking water out of the spigot that comes from your the house. water treatment yeah. plant to all this virgin water out. You can, you can re, uh, re repurpose existing, repurpose system. existing systems and, and resources like water. <clears throat> and so, yeah, there's lead is good, but we're, we're beyond, we're beyond thinking about that. We need to start thinking in a regenerative yeah. process. Yeah. It's not as far as we need to go. That's it. That is an interesting thought. Cause I know, um, you know, you're seeing large uh, of all people, tech companies are some of the the people at the forefront here where they're saying, Hey, I recognize that the servers that are making this company work are, are utilizing, you know, fossil fuels or, or coal or whatever it may be, uh, to be able to ensure the long term use. So they're like, how are we moving in a direction? Like, how are we going to be not just carbon neutral, but you know, carbon negative, I think is the term to be able to, you know, look at long-term sustainability. Yeah. Well, again, the conversation needs to shift to regenerative. Right. Um, carbon neutral isn't as far as we need to go. No, I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You have to be, you know, that's just kind of offsetting what's currently, but it's like we've already kind of accelerated the velocity. You know, I, I you yeah. know, my calculus side is coming out. Yeah, and yeah. Like, all right, the acceleration's in the negative, but our velocity is sustained. Like, we need to, you know, have this deceleration aspect. Yeah, that, I guess, I mean, and that's where the compassion for humanity kind of fails i mean mm-hmm. it, so then we get into like income inequality where yeah. poor people can't move out of unsafe areas and we, and we have this yeah it is um this is where it's like really interesting to get the people sorry to interrupt but like all the people in the room around this all the stakeholders that yeah the realtors the developers the individuals the you know the uh, official officers of the of the valley as a whole yeah yeah exactly and it's um i'll tell you a quick story about water mm-hmm. i think water is gonna like over technology and anything, I think, um, water is going to dictate what humans do. Hmm. So, uh, are you familiar with the dust bowl? Uh, do we talk about this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the dust bowl happened, uh, at the beginning of the great depression Mm -hmm. and all of our farmers and our old systemic way of thinking, uh, were wheat farmers in the Midwest and the, the depression was coming. And so what they did is doubled the size of their crops. So right when, when inflation and uh, um, supply are high, then and the demand is low, then the supply goes up to try and recoup 
mm-hmm. um, that with more product yep. right at a less at a less cost and so because your farmer has to still make his whatever 50 grand a year sure and so yeah and, and so what they did was they doubled the size of their farmland in the midwest and this was like millions of acres that they tilled up the soil and like took away all of the grasses that were holding the soil down. Well, then this 10 year drought happened, uh, creating the dust bowl. And there were these dust storms that were hundreds of feet high and almost created the new Sahara desert. Hmm. And, um, and so by the end of the decade, we realized that we needed something to hold the soils down. So they started planting grass again and all of that. Well, at that point, they also discovered that you could drill a well and use it to, to water the crops. You didn't have to rely on the rain anymore mm-hmm. to dictate whether there would be a drought or not. And so in the Ogallala Aquifer, we started drilling wells into the Ogallala Aquifer. And then we, instead of shrinking the farms, we expanded them even further and just sucked the water out of the Ogallala Aquifer that took millions of years to charge. And since the 1970s, we've been taking out a half trillion gallons of water more per year than it takes in. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> what's the what's the estimated size of the of the reservoir? No one knows. So that's a uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and so um, that's where like the regenerative thinking with water capture. Yeah. I, I I think that's like the biggest thing I've been nerding out on lately is Yeah. It's interesting. That. Did you ever watch the movie? I think we talked about this. The movie The Big Short with yeah. um it's um Christian Bale's character in that. I can't remember his name, but it, it talks about him as the at the end like he's a he's real per, like the 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 movie's a based on a true story. And but his character like, you know, he had this crazy investment career, but then he goes off and he's like I'm just investing in water. Like water is the only the number one resource to focus on. Yeah. Which is interesting. It actually also in 2020 water, uh, started on the New York stock exchange. Hmm. If you water futures, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting there. I'm kind of curious. So back on the lead certification side of things, um, what's that experience been like with building blunderbuss, the expansion there with, um, and, and also kind of talking about the SDGs. We talked a little bit about this before the show. I thought there was six or nine, but there's actually 17. 17. Sustainable development goals. Tells you how much I know. (laughs) Um, this is the United Nations put forth these goals and uh, you don't have to list them all, but you can talk a little bit about how Blunderbuss is kind of falling into some of those categories. Yeah, my my dad actually was a lead architect for the National Park Service. Mm. And so when we built Blunderbuss, we took a lot of things into consideration. Uh, there's a SIPS construction that uh, basically is a on the exterior of the building. It's basically studless. Mm. And it's all insulation. There's about 90% less studs in the building. uh, And that creates um, a lot of buildings that have studs uh, leak energy, either cold air or warm air, because there's insulation in between the studs, but there's no insulation where the studs actually are. Yeah. In acoustics, they they call it a short circuit. Okay. Yeah. And so there's building, there's ways to do buildings that are more efficient with energy like that. So that was one of our processes. And then, um, we put in a 38 and a half kilowatt solar system Hmm. that covers our entire load. 38 and a half kilowatt. That's substantial. Yeah. It's pretty big. It, uh, our little app tells us how many trees we, we planted per day. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Um, it started 
this summer and i think it's up to maybe for the equivalent of 400 trees are you guys doing any kind of energy storage with that we're not yet right now the we got in before the legislation changes yeah. we'll be grandfathered in but it's called net metering mm-hmm. where you basically uh create the energy and it goes back onto the grid and they in northwestern energy we kind of have a, a energy bank account yeah and so yeah. in the summertime we charge all the energy that we need because we don't use a lot yeah. and then they're in the paying winter, you basically and then and then you're you're paying them in the winter yeah and then in the winter we will use it for all of our electric heat it's been interesting uh it's been a gas heated house the original house was uh gas heated and so we've mm-hmm. been working on retrofitting the entire thing to have electric heat which is it's an interesting process because I had always grown up thinking, don't do electric because it's expensive. Electric's like the worst thing ever. Yeah. And then, but yeah, what's what's unique about electric heat is, and especially in your scenario there, is um, the efficiency around utilize, having no conversion process. So you're using a fully sustainable system there. You, your energy is coming from the sun. It's directly going to power these devices that are creating heat inside so it's like it's kind of a one-to-one ratio in some regards you know it's it's uh you know the electronic systems that we have right now aren't that efficient but um in the regard of one-to-one but they're getting really close they're getting close yeah the reactive energy there's something known as the in electronics they call it the power triangle okay and um there's there's uh, if you think of a uh, a triangle um there's a component of it that's real energy and then there's a component of it that's known as reactive energy and the reactive energy is is the energy that's lost in conversions and so as we're able to move more in the direction of efficient electronics where you're having you know your solar panel absorbing the sun passing that uh, power into the home to be able to power these individual electric base heaters then the the more efficient those electronics become the the more or the less reactive energy there is and the the, the less the, it'll lose yeah, on the, the more efficient your yeah, system okay. becomes yeah that it's, makes sense it's pretty interesting but, sure um yeah i think you know the other aspect of that on on energy storage i'm i'm curious when you talk about the legislature um one of the things for our listeners net metering that's really interesting is um there's been a lot of legislation around you know the the utilities fighting back saying no net metering shouldn't be a thing um and so it's and then there's kind of like you know you pay whatever i don't know what the rates are but like 10 cents for a a, a kilowatt uh and they'll pay you only like five cents for it mm. if, if you sell it to them or something there's there's different things i've seen about that but it's, yeah it's unique i mean <laughs> if if you uh if you have a free minute check out net metering and, and the debate behind that it's pretty unique there so yeah luckily we got grandfathered in that's cool and and uh maybe in i think that we were told that the technology for batteries has a maybe like wait five years yes it does for storage there's a lot of well the the um materials is the cool is the the side of it that's interesting one of the things to keep an eye on there's a, a company actually out of kalispell montana called uh vision energy and they build something called zinc air batteries and they're the size of uh, you know, one of those shipping containers. They actually put them in wow. shipping containers. They're they're these huge batteries, but they're um, 
way more efficient than you know lithium ion or, or whatever you're putting in in a tesla a lot of the time cool. tesla wall battery so yeah cool that'll be cool yeah. i think uh, yeah and i'll i think my next car will be oh i'm gonna wait till cars can reach like 600 miles on a charge yes but one of the one of the cool <laughs> we're actually roughing in off of our expansion we're roughing in electric power stations cool for cars that's awesome. uh, which will be kind of cool it's it's future proof i mean that's that's the direction you see Every single car manufacturer's moving Volkswagen. I mean, Tesla's just leading the way, but Volkswagen, GM, yeah. you know, Nissan. Everybody is moving in the direction of electric because it's it's yeah. obvious. Well, and and you brought up the sustainable development goals. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the SDGs that the United Nations created, and uh, it's basically this set of goals that. The reason why I like the set of goals is is because it. There's 190 countries that are involved with the United Nations and a lot of companies have their own versions of sustainable goals. Yeah. But this set is the only set that speaks to that many different cultures and languages. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important. It's unified. Because we're all on the same page. Yeah. And so the idea of the goals is to to solve them by 2030 and whether we will or not on some of them is debatable. There are things like hunger and education and gender equality. The, the higher reaching ones are life on land, life underwater, climate. Um, there's sustainable buildings and communities, uh, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, um, peace, justice, and institutions, and partnerships for the goals are a handful of them. And so 2030 is the date that a lot of scientists have, uh, I know it's debatable, uh, have suggested that is a point beyond return if we don't get our carbon emissions down. Right. And so there's this urge, it's called the decade of action, even before COVID happened, 2020 kicked off the decade of action that um, if you're on board with the SDGs, um, it's where everybody goes all in, whether they're government, a business, or individual selves, they apply um, to one or a dozen of the goals, everybody can find something within each of these goals. There are thousands of little projects that need to be solved. And if you're not on board with climate change, there's 16 other goals that could really use a hand. Um, and so, yeah, I've been, uh, through interchange, I was a, de- a delegate at the United Nations media for social impact summit. Cool. And now I'm uh, part of their catalyst team, oh, that's catalyst cool. 2030 team. And it's this, again, with all the projects, there's, all these thousands of little projects uh, within each of the goals and that speaks uh, over 190 different cultures. And, and so it's this group of social entrepreneurs uh, who are uh, dedicating their projects and aligning them with, with the SDGs hmm. to help solve them and, and kind of help create a blueprint. Blunderbuss is, is kind of a test version of two of the goals, which is uh, – sustainable business or sustainable communities and then uh, industry innovation and Mm. infrastructure um, with shared resources as well as um, creating a regenerative property that um, captures water and you know has a a natural ecosystem around it and also the uh, there's a lot of waste Uh, a lot of people will have you know their own awesome shops with that will they'll use a couple times a year but um, there's a really efficient way of doing it if you can share the resources and yes. manage them well you can you can still have nice things and and excel in a creative space by um just re kind of 
changing, making that systemic change to, to share a little. Yeah. Yeah. That allocation in that regard. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, blunderbuss aligns with that interchange aligns with usually with education and partnerships for the goals Mm. through our labs and debates. You, we can actually apply it to any one of the goals. So there's, there's tension, uh, within all of the goals on how we get there. Yeah. And so it's literally an ocean of potential for IM Interchange to to navigate and and uh, develop media and create problem solving labs. So um, the Catalyst team that I joined recently, um, I'm going to be doing a lot of their uh, lab designs, which will be pretty cool. That'll be super cool. That's so, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Well, Tate, we're going to move into our signature questions at the end of our show here. Um, these are, we ask them on every single episode. I think we talked a little bit about them before, but number one, what makes you, Tate Chamberlain, efficient? What makes me efficient? Yeah, tool, process, so on and so forth. I think that I'm efficient because I started off as an entrepreneur and not knowing where my next paycheck would come from. Yeah. And so that gave me a good kind of fire under my butt to a force to work hard. Yeah. There was a forced efficiency post-it notes. Keep me efficient. Uh, the post-it note. I love that. I, we were talking before <laughs> the show about that. And I think that that was, I was hoping you were going to say that. Cause I was like, I think that's so cool. <laughs> Cause it's like, you know, it's a, it's very versatile. You could have, notes on it you can have to do's on it you can have ideas you can have quotes on it <laughs> you can have whatever yeah um in case you haven't discovered post-it notes by now <laughs> if you haven't discovered post-it notes they're great and, and i know that phones have like the note the thing, notes but yeah. it's um it's not you can't cross it off and you can't redo it as easy and what i do is you know just a to-do list every night if i if my mind's racing with things to do i always will have a post-it note to make a list and then i can forget about it yeah um, and that's been really helpful to, uh, I, to shut my mind off. I've heard that's a really good idea is, you know, I, well, I do that too, is, you know, if you have whatever your, your list of items to do, as soon as they're down on paper, they're, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. They're gone. And, and you don't stress out about it. That's mostly to do items. I use my phone. I'm working on a book and I'll use my, my phone to write down notes throughout the day. If I think of some yeah new piece of it that I want to add, um, my notes in my phone are just, you know, full of new interchange topics and, uh, book notes and just a, it's a good storage area where if, uh, any time throughout my day where this random thing for a miscellaneous project pops up, um, I just have to have a space to write it down. Yep. Yeah. And just post it for, for later. Yeah. And that, that is really helpful for my, my process. It is a good process. Cause then you can revisit and kind of see your train of thought. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Question two, what would you consider your biggest failure and or moment of growth? Uh, I would say that my most successful failure, maybe my most successful failure. (laughs) This is a good way to preface. This was, uh, I was in the closet for a long time. I was in a small community that uh, I had a lot of social pressure around me and it caused me, um, you know, I wouldn't hang out with girls cause they would, uh, the assumption was if you hung out with girls, then you were, you're the gay kid. And so yeah. I, 
I hung out with my guy friends and that repeatedly you would connect with your guy friends and then slowly like fall in love with them. Yeah. And so my big, my most successful failure was, uh, throughout high school and college before like actually coming out and loving myself. Uh, I would like go through this process of falling in love with my straight best friends. And so it, uh, my most successful failure was like all of those failures, um, really helping me like love myself. That's cool was was probably my most successful failure that's a cool way i love the spin on that that's that's a good approach on that <laughs> thanks that's awesome tate i've got a lot of i've i've got lots of others but that's probably the the most impactful. the one that stands out mm-hmm. yeah I, yeah and that is the question um last question if you could have one tool anything in the world right now to make you know life easier in, in whatever capacity it is what would it be and, and why I talk a lot about polarities Mm -hmm. and there's always a polarity between my heart and my mind. Yeah. And if I had a tool to help differentiate that Hmm. sometimes. Like something to kind of separate the, you know, the logic and the emotion. Yeah. In in some regard. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And and define it almost would be nice. And define it. Yeah. You know, all of my projects have been expressions of myself. Yeah. And so my heart is like attached to it. Blunderbuss and Interchange are like my little kids. Yeah. Expressions of me. I think every single small business owner should be that way. If not, you're, you're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, you know, following your heart and that, that putting your creative energy towards projects that, that kind of move through you and, um, inspire you, but they're totally emotional. Oh, totally. they're totally emotion based. I, I feel like they can't necessarily be successful. It's interesting because it, there is that balance there. Yeah, you you have to have this balance of passion and knowing when to make the the judgment call, the logical judgment call over the passion. Yeah, and and Blunderbuss is a good example. I want to, I always want to be of service and offer a, a great, vibrant space for people to be creative in. And, um, sometimes I give too much of myself without, Mm. without boundaries. Yeah. My heart will like want that, but then my mind, uh, I wish I had a switch where my mind would just be like, um, switch to business mode. Yeah. I mean, people with boundaries are often dismissed as, you know, being jerks Yeah, and things like that. And I, you know, I don't want to be a jerk, but I also, um, there's a healthy balance. I also need boundaries and, and with Blunderbuss, I, you know, there's 10 bedrooms and nine private studios and co-working. And so all these people are coming to me because they need that space. And each person takes a little bit of my energy. Yeah. And, um, that compounds exponentially. It does sometimes. And so, um, keeping an eye out for myself, uh, in that regard, I wish I had a switch for sometimes. Yeah. That's a, I love that answer. I think that's a really cool answer tape because I think, all of us and there's a big awareness around that especially with everything with covid and you know 100 zoom meetings a day or whatever (laughs) that recent article was but i think there's a lot more awareness around 
how do we how do we handle especially you know a great example the co-working space where you're in a you know you're working in the home environment where you are like you can't mentally dissociate necessarily when you when you leave your home and go to the office you're like all right i'm in work mode right and then you get home and you're like all right i'm done with work mode i'm back in my normal self but you can't you couldn't do that during covid when you're working from home it's like you are you there's no physical separation there yeah and so you know i think now more than ever people globally are aware of that yeah yeah and and that's where the the alchemy of it all and the the social chemistry of it really became real during covid yeah Um, because people were scared and some people were like i'm not gonna wear a mask i don't believe in this shit and then other people were like i don't want to live with somebody who's not gonna wear a mask (laughs) it's a good interchange topic yeah now i'm over that topic (laughs) yeah yeah it's fair well tate this has been fantastic thank you so much for being on the show um i've loved our conversation i think it was awesome and uh, i'm sure our listeners have been enjoying it both live and then on the podcast this next week as well i think it's it was fantastic so thank you so much for being on the show thanks for having me appreciate it cheers hey everyone i hope you enjoyed the conversation today with tate chamberlain i know i did This is actually our last episode of season one of the show. We'll be taking a break over the next couple months and preparing for season two starting this fall. We have a whole series of interesting conversations coming up with a couple new guests as well as some familiar faces. If you haven't already, be sure to share the show with your friends and we'll see you in the fall. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of Tatonic. If you guys enjoy the show, hit that subscribe button or scroll down and leave us a rating. You can also find out everything we're up to on social media at Tatonic Podcast and as always at NelsTate.com. We'll see you guys next week on Tatonic. Tatonic.